Chapter 8, Part 1 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 8, Part 1. The Pastor's Wife and Daughter of Consolation. 1866 to 1868. We now enter upon the most interesting and happiest period of Mrs. Prentice's experience as a pastor's wife. The congregation of the Church of the Covenant had been slowly forming in troublesome times. It was composed of congenial elements, being of one heart and one mind. Some of the most cultivated families and family circles in New York belonged to it, and Mrs. Prentice was much beloved in them all. What a helpmeet she was to her husband, and with that zeal and delight she fulfilled her office, especially that of a daughter of consolation, among his people will soon appear. How ignorant we often are, at the time, of the turning points in our life. We inquire for a summer boarding place and decide upon it without any thought beyond the few weeks for which it was engaged. And yet, perhaps, our whole earthly future or that of those most dear to us is to be vitally affected by this seemingly trifling decision. So it happened to Mrs. Prentice in 1866. Early in May, her husband and his brother-in-law, Dr. Stearns, went, at a venture, to Dorset, Vermont, and there secured rooms for their families during the summer. But little did either she or they dream that Dorset was to be henceforth her summer home and her resting place in death. The Portland Fire to which reference is made in the following letters, occurred on the 4th of July and consumed a large portion of the city. To Miss Mary B. Shipman, Dorset, July 25, 1866. Never in my life did I live through such a spring and early summer as this. As to business and bustle, I mean. You must have given me up as a lost case. But I have thought of you every day and longed to hear how you were getting on and whether you lived through that dreadful weather. Annie went with the children to Williamstown about the middle of June. I nearly killed myself with getting them ready to go, and could see the flesh drop off my bones. George and I went to Newport on what Mrs. Bronson called our bridal trip, and stayed eleven days. Mr. and Mrs. McCurdy were kindness personified. We came home and preached on the first Sunday in July, and then went to Greenfield Hill to spend the fourth with Mrs. Bronson. That nearly finished me, and then I went to Williamstown on that hot Friday and was quite finished on reaching there to hear about the fire in Portland. Did you ever hear anything so dreadful? I did not know for several days, but agency were burnt out of house and home. Most of my other friends I knew were, and can there be any calamity like being left naked, hungry, and homeless, everything gone forever? but let no one say a word that has a roof over his head all my father's servants were burned the house where most of us were born his church etc fancy new haven stripped of its shade trees and you can form some idea of the loss of portland in that respect well i might go on talking forever and not have said anything the heat upset g and we have been fighting off sickness for a week i getting wild with loss of sleep we are enchanted with dorset we are so near the woods and mountains that we go every day and spend hours wandering about among them. If there is any difference, I think this place even more beautiful than Williamstown. 
It suits us better as a summer retreat, from its great seclusion. I am, that is, we are, mean enough to want to keep it as quiet and secluded as it is now, by not letting people know how nice it is. A very few fashionably dressed people would just spoil it for us. So keep our counsel, you dear child. A few days later, she writes to Mrs. Smith, then in Europe. On the 6th, a day of fearful heat, I went to Williamstown, where I found all the children as well as possible, but heard the news of the Portland fire which almost killed me. All my father's manuscripts are destroyed. We always meant to divide them among us and ought to have done it long ago. I heard of any number of injudicious babies as taking the inopportune day succeeding the fire to enter on the scene of desolation, all born in tents. I am sorry my children will never see my father's church, nor the house where I was born, but private griefs are nothing when compared with a calamity that is so appalling and that must send many a heart homeless and aching to the grave. I spent two weeks at Williamstown, when George came for me, and the weather cooling off, we had a comfortable journey here. We are perfectly delighted with Dorset. The sweet seclusion is most soothing, and the house is very pleasant. Mr. and Mrs. F. are intelligent, agreeable people, and do all they can to make us comfortable. The mountains are so near that I hear the crows cawing in the trees. We are making pretty things and pressing an unheard-of quantity of ferns. We go to the woods regularly every morning and stay the whole forenoon. In the afternoon we rest, read, write, etc. Sometimes we drive, and always after tea George walks with me about two miles. I hope the war is not impeding your movements. I suppose you will call this a short letter, but I think it is as long as is good for you. All my dear nine pounds gained at Newburgh have gone by the board. August 20th. I am sorry you had such hot weather in Paris, but hope it passed off as our heat did. Dr. Hamlin's two youngest daughters have been here and came to see me. They are both interesting girls, and the elder of the two really brilliant. They had never been here before and were carried away with the beauties of their mother's birthplace. I wish you could see my room. Every pretty thing grows here and has come to cheer and beautify it. The woods are everywhere, and as for the views, oh, my child! However, I do not suppose anything short of Mount Blanc will suit you now. In April, 1867, the parsonage on 35th Street was occupied. It had been built more especially for her sake, and was furnished by the generosity of her friends. Her joy in entering it was completed by a housewarming, at the close of which a passage of scripture was read by Professor Smith, All hail the power of Jesus' name, sung, and then the blessing of heaven invoked upon the new home by that holy man of God, Dr. Thomas H. Skinner. Here she passed the next six years of her life. Here she wrote the larger portion of Stepping Heavenward, and here the cup of her domestic joy, and of joy in her God and Savior, often ran over. Here, too, some of her dearest Christian friendships were formed and enjoyed. The summer of 1867 was passed at Dorset. In less than a month of it, she wrote one of her best children's books, Little Lou's Sayings and Doings and much of the remainder was spent in discussing with her husband the project of building a cottage of their own. In a letter to her cousin, Miss Shipman, dated September 21, she writes, We have had our heads full all summer of building a little cottage here. We are having a plan made and have about fixed on a lot. We are rather tired of boarding. 
George hates it, and Dorset suits us as well, I presume, as any village would. It is a lovely spot, and the people are as intelligent as in other parts of New England. The professor is disappointed at our choosing this rather than Williamstown, but it would be no rest to us to go there. We have not decided to build. It may turn out too expensive, but we have taken lots of comfort in talking about it. We have been on several excursions, one of them to the top of Equinox. It is a hard trip, fully six miles walking and climbing. I have amused myself with writing some little books of the Susie sort, four in less than a month, a sickness taking a good piece of time out of that period. They are to appear, or a part of them, in the riverside next winter, and then to be issued in book form by Hurd and Hofton. This will a good deal more than furnish our cottage and what trees and shrubs we want, so that I feel justified in undertaking that expense. We had two weeks at Newport before we came here, and Mr. and Mrs. McCurdy overwhelmed us with kindness, paying our travel expenses, etc., and keeping up one steady stream of such favors the whole time. I never saw such people. How delightful it must be to be able to express such benevolence. Well, you and I can be faithful in that which is least, at any rate. We have all had plenty to read all summer, and have sat out of doors and read a good deal. I am going now to carry a little read to a missionary's wife who is spending the summer here. A nice little woman. This will give me a three miles walk and about use up the rest of the forenoon. In the afternoon I have promised to go to the woods with the children, all of whom are as brown as Indians. My room is all aflame with two great trees of maple. I never saw such a beautiful velvety color as they have. We have just had a very pleasant excursion to a mountain called Haystack, and ate our dinner sitting round in the grass in view of a splendid prospect. I have thus given you the history of our summer, as far as its history can be written. Its ecstatic joys have not been wanting, nor its hours of shame and confusion of face, but these are things that cannot be described. What a mystery life is, and how we go up and down, glad today and sorrowful tomorrow. I took real solid comfort thinking of you and praying for you this morning. I love you dearly and always shall. Good-bye, dear child. The four little books afford a good illustration of the ease and rapidity with which she composed. When once she had fixed upon a subject, her pen almost flew over the paper. Scarcely ever did she hesitate for a thought or for the right words to express it. Her manuscript rarely showed an erasure or any change whatever. She generally wrote on a portfolio, holding it upon her knees. Her pen seemed to be a veritable part of herself and the instant it began to move, her face glowed with eager and pleasurable feeling. A kitten, she wrote to a maiden friend, a kitten without a tail to play with, a mariner without a compass, a bird without wings, a woman without a husband, and fifty-five at that, furnish faint images of the desolation of my heart without a pen. But although she wrote very fast, she never began to write without careful study and premeditation when her subject required it. About this time, the little creature appeared. The scene of the story is laid in the Black Forest. Before writing it, she spent a good deal of time in the Astor Library, reading about peasant life in Germany. In a letter from a literary friend, this little work is thus referred to. I want to tell you what a German gentleman said to me the other day about your little preacher. He was talking with me of German peasant life, and inquired if I had read your charming story. He was delighted to find I knew you, and exclaimed enthusiastically, 
I wish I knew her. I would so like to thank her for her perfect picture. It is a miracle of genius, he added, to be able thus to portray the life of a foreign people. He is very intelligent, and so I know you will be pleased with his appreciation of your book. He said if he were not so poor, he would buy a whole edition of the little preacher to give to his friends. During the autumn of this year, her sister-in-law, Mrs. Edward Payson, died after a lingering painful illness. The following letter, dated October 28, was written to her shortly before her departure. I have been so engrossed with sympathy for Edward and your children that I have but just begun to realize that you are about entering on a state of felicity which ought, for the time, to make me forget them. Dear Nellie, I congratulate you with all my heart. Do not let the thought of what those who love you must suffer in your loss diminish the peace and joy with which God now calls you to think only of himself and the home he has prepared for you. Try to leave them to his kind, tender care. He loves them better than you do. He can be to them more than you have been. He will hear your prayers and all the prayers offered for them, and as one whom his mother comforteth, so will he comfort them. We, who shall be left here without you, cannot conceive the joys on which you are to enter, but we know enough to go with you to the very gates of the city, longing to enter in with you to go no more out. All your tears will soon be wiped away. You will see the king in his beauty. You will see Christ your Redeemer and realize all he is and all he has done for you. And how many saints whom you have loved on earth will be standing ready to seize you by the hand and welcome you among them. As I think of these things, my soul is in haste to be gone. I long to be set free from sin and self and to go to the fellowship of those who have done with them forever and are perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Dear Nelly, I pray that you may have as easy a journey homeward as your father's love and compassion can make for you. But these sufferings of the worst cannot last long, and they are only the messengers sent to loosen your last tie on earth and conduct you to the sweetest rest. But I dare not write more, lest I weary your poor worn frame with words. May the very God of peace be with you every moment, even unto the end, and keep your heart and mind stayed upon him. Mrs. Payson had been an intimate friend of her childhood, and was endeared to her by uncommon loveliness and excellence of character. The bereaved husband, with his little boy, passed a portion of the ensuing winter at the parsonage in New York. There was something about the child, a sweetness and a clinging, almost wild devotion to his father, which, together with his motherless state, touched his aunt to the quick and called forth her tenderest love. Many a page of stepping heavenward was written with his child in her arms, and perhaps that is one secret of his power. When, not very long afterwards, he went to his mother, Mrs. Prentice wrote to the father, Only this morning I was trying to invent some way of framing my little picture of Francis, so as to see it every day before my eyes. And now this evening's mail brings your letter, and I am trying to believe what it says is true. If grief and pain could comfort you, you would be comforted. We all loved Francis, and A has always said he was too lovely to live. How are you going to bear this new blow? My heart aches as it asks the question, aches and trembles for you. But perhaps you loved him so that you will come to be willing to have him in his dear mother's safe keeping. We'll bear your own pain in future because through your anguish, your lamb is sheltered forever, to know no more pain, to suffer no more for lack of womanly care. 
and is already developing into the rare character which made him so precious to you. Oh, do try to rejoice for him while you cannot but mourn for yourself. At the longest you will not have long to suffer. We are a short-lived race. But while I write, I feel that I want someone to speak a comforting word to me. I too am bereaved in the death of this precious child, and my sympathy for you is in itself a pang. Dear little lamb, I cannot realize that I shall never see that sweet face again in this world, but I shall see it in heaven. God bless and comfort you, my dear afflicted brother. I dare not worry you with words which all seem a mockery. I can only assure you of my tenderest love and sympathy, and that we all feel with and for you, as only those can who know what this child was to you. I am going to bed with an aching heart, praying that light may spring out of this darkness. Give love from us all to Ned and Will. Perhaps Ned will kindly write me if you feel that you cannot, and tell me all about the dear child's illness. End of chapter 8, part 1, recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.